Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic violence and sexual assault that some people may find offensive and may be upsetting for some listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. For more information and resources, victims and survivors of domestic violence can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at one 800 799 7233 or visit www.thehotline.org. Irma Castro recognized that she was an old-fashioned woman. Her teenage daughters sometimes scoffed at her rules and admonitions, but she believed that it was important to raise them with a firm hand. Young people could be so foolish and impulsive. They need sensible adults to guide them to ensure they didn't stray into harm. That's what Irma feared for Lorena Gallo. Even though Lorena wasn't her biological child, Irma was responsible for her. And she was becoming concerned by some of the changes she noticed in the last few months. Lorena was acting differently ever since she met that young man in the Marine Corps. In Irma's opinion, the boy just wasn't responsible. When he came to visit Lorena, he didn't show the right kind of respect. Irma kept track of the grades Lorena earned at community college, and she had noted that since Lorena started hanging out with him, she had gone from getting A's and B's to F's. And Irma's daughters told her he never seemed to have any money. He was sponging off Lorena like a leech. That wasn't how a proper courtship should go. Of course, Lorena wouldn't hear anything of it. She just kept saying she loved him. Irma didn't know what to do. She would never let that man date one of her own daughters. She knew that Lorena was on a bad path and she was afraid for her. But if the young woman wouldn't listen to reason, there was nothing Irma could do but pray for Lorena Gallo and John Wayne Bobbitt.
Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. It's been 25 years since Lorena and John Wayne Bobbitt first made headlines across the country. For anyone even slightly familiar with their story, it's almost impossible not to feel a visceral reaction to the name Bobbitt. It invokes disgust, outrage, ridicule, or all three. But while the name remains notorious, the details of their relationship are often obscured by jokes and lurid speculation. In this episode, we'll explore the beginning of John and Lorena Bobbitt's courtship and the volatile marriage that followed. In our next two episodes, we'll talk about how the Bobbitt's marriage culminated in an infamous act of mutilation and the criminal charges trials, and media frenzy that surrounded the couple. For Lorena Gallo, family meant love, tradition, and respect. These were the values she was raised to believe in. Born in Bukay, Ecuador in 1969, Lorena grew up in a deeply religious Catholic family. Though her parents were strict, Lorena always felt surrounded by warmth and affection. In describing her parents' relationship, she said, they are like little kids, always holding hands. When Lorena was five, her family moved from Ecuador to Venezuela. They hoped to find a better life there. But as Lorena got older, she dreamed about starting over in another country, even farther away. She was in love with the idea of living in the United States. She grew up watching American movies and television, captivated by the alluring world they portrayed. She completely bought into the idea of the American dream and the land of opportunity. She couldn't wait to discover it for herself. When Lorena turned 15 in 1984, she told her parents that she didn't want them to pay for a big quinceanera party. Instead, she wanted to use that money to take a trip to the U.S., Lorena arrived in Washington, D.C. in the spring, when the cherry blossoms were in bloom. She was elated to be there. She later said, It was like another planet. Everything was just pink and beautiful. She told herself, Oh God, this is the place I want to be. A few years later, Lorena got her wish. After she graduated from high school in Venezuela, she obtained a student visa to study in the United States. Her parents allowed her to enroll in a community college in the Northern Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C. 
There, Lorena stayed with the Castros, family friends who were also immigrants from South America. Lorena didn't speak much English, so she enrolled in ESL classes. She also got a job working as a nanny for a woman named Jana Busuti. Soon after, she took a position as a manicurist at a salon owned by Miss Basuti. The Castro family, like Lorena's, was strict and religious. While living with them, she was expected to follow a curfew and bring a chaperone on dates. Lorena didn't seem to mind the sheltered life, but it might not have been to her benefit. Before I continue with Lorena's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Dr. Richard Seidewick, a professor of neurology at George Washington University, stated that protecting children from the realities of the world can hamper their ability to learn from misfortune and develop the resilience that makes negotiating adult life easier. In recent years, Lorena admitted that she was very immature in her early adulthood. She didn't have the capacity to make responsible decisions or handle the consequences of such. She later said, I was naive about many things. The Castros had two daughters and several nieces around Lorena's age, and the young women were permitted to go out and socialize together. In September of 1988, they went dancing at an enlisted men's club located in the Marine Corps base at Quantico, Virginia. At the party, 19-year-old Lorena enjoyed herself. Several men asked her to dance, but only one young man came to sit at her table. Lorena still struggled with English, but the man, nevertheless, tried to hold a conversation with her. The 21-year-old Lance Corporal introduced himself as John Wayne Bobbitt. To Lorena, it might as well have been a dream or a fairy tale. She was a simple girl living out her big adventure in a foreign land. The only thing missing from the story was Prince Charming. But tonight, after an evening filled with dancing and music, a handsome man with beautiful blue eyes was holding her hand and telling her how pretty she was. She couldn't understand everything he said, but he made it clear that he wanted to see her again. He asked for her phone number. Lorena couldn't think of any reason to turn him down. It felt like fate. All these years she had been waiting to discover the American dream, a successful life with a loving husband and family. With John, she felt like all of that was possible. John called the Castro residence the very next day, asking to take Lorena out. They began to see each other regularly, never alone, because the Castros wouldn't allow it. But John would come over to their house for dinner or to watch a movie. Other times, Lorena and John went out for ice cream, accompanied by one of the Castro daughters. Lorena later said that the Castro girls didn't like John because he frequently forgot his wallet, leaving Lorena to pay the bill when they went out. Their mother, Irma, noted that when the pair planned a date, he seemed incapable of showing up on time. Irma later said that he didn't strike her as a responsible young man. Lorena wasn't bothered by any of this at all. If John behaved a little carelessly, she didn't believe it was on purpose. She was too infatuated with him to worry about these flaws. She thought he was good-looking and charming, 
and she was impressed by his military service. Lorena's boss, Miss Busuti, said, It was like a high school romance. To 19-year-old Lorena, John was Tom Cruise. Lorena was deeply in love with her new suitor, even though they didn't have much in common. She soon learned that John had experienced a very different kind of life than she had. In interviews, he has been open about the abuse he suffered as a child, stating that his father was an alcoholic who regularly beat him, his brothers, and his mother. When he was very young, around three or four, his father left the family. John's mother had a breakdown after his father walked out, and some reports indicate that she abused drugs. John also said his family had no money and they were forced to live in a crime-ridden ghetto, where he claims they were often the victims of racially motivated violent attacks. When he was still a small child, John and his two brothers were sent to live with an aunt and uncle. John had limited contact with his mother after the move. Dr. Sherry Hamby, a research professor of psychology at Swanee, the University of the South, stated that people who grow up exposed to domestic violence are more likely to be in violent relationships as adults or teens, about twice as likely in many studies. In addition, physicians Martin R. Hecker and William Smock reported that children who witness domestic violence may believe that violence is a reasonable way to resolve conflict but it can be difficult to predict how a child's exposure to violence will affect later behavior. Medical researcher Zlatka Rakovic felser of the University of Maribor School of Medicine noted this in a recent paper. She stated that some studies support the notion that growing up in an aggressive family increases the probability of being a victim of spouse abuse, whereas other studies have provided support for the notion that growing up in an aggressive home increases the probability of being a perpetrator of spouse abuse. What is clear is that children who experience or witness domestic violence often suffer long-term consequences into adulthood. John has said that he enjoyed a happy childhood after moving in with his extended family. In a separate interview, however, he claimed that he and his brothers were molested by an uncle during this time. By some accounts, John also had difficulties in school due to a learning disability and attention deficit disorder, but he was able to graduate from high school. In 1987, 20-year-old John joined the Marine Corps. John said that his military career blunted his ability to feel empathy, saying, because I'm a combat Marine, I'm trained not to feel emotions. It's really hard for me to understand a person who has a lot of feelings. He later claimed that his marital problems with Lorena were partly caused by his lack of sensitivity but this didn't seem to be a problem at the start of their relationship. Lorena was just happy to have his attention. After about 10 months of dating, 22-year-old John and 20-year-old Lorena were married. A justice of the peace performed the legal ceremony on June 18, 1989. The couple settled into a small studio apartment in Manassas, Virginia. 
Out of the Castro's home and no longer burdened by chaperones and restrictions, John and Lorena could finally build an intimate relationship together as husband and wife. They seemed happy together, but that was quick to change. We'll talk about John and Lorena's disastrous marriage coming up. Now back to the story. In 1988, 21-year-old Marine Corps Lance Corporal John Wayne Bobbitt met 19-year-old Lorena Gallo, a young woman who had recently immigrated to the United States from Venezuela. They had palpable chemistry, and after less than a year of dating, they decided to get married. But the marriage turned sour almost immediately. They moved into a small studio apartment, but they couldn't afford to furnish it. For the first month of their marriage, they slept on the floor. From John Wayne Bobbitt's perspective, this was the start of their problems. Lorena wanted too much, too fast. John said that Lorena was angry that he could not provide more for her. To her, the American dream meant being successful and having a big house. But Lorena told a different story. She was concerned by John's behavior very early in their marriage. She has said that the first cracks began to appear just a few weeks after they moved in together. During the July 4th holiday, John and Lorena took a trip up to Niagara Falls to visit John's family. According to Lorena, John didn't tell her that his family had planned a special wedding reception and picnic at their local church. The newlyweds arrived a day late, missing the celebration. When they got there, everyone was furious. It was Lorena's first introduction to John's family. All she could say was, I'm sorry, I didn't know. After staying in Niagara for three days, John and Lorena returned to Manassas. They did not go back alone. John's cousin, Todd Byro, accompanied them. John told Lorena that his cousin was going to live with them for a while. Lorena was upset. Todd was a stranger to her. She tried to tell John's family that they lived in a tiny studio apartment without any furniture. She felt that they weren't in a position to host guests. But Lorena said her husband didn't care. Todd was going to move in with them, whether she liked it or not. Soon after, Lorena found drug paraphernalia in their apartment. She then discovered that Todd was a convicted felon and addicted to cocaine. An even bigger problem was Todd's influence on John. While he stayed with them, the two men went out drinking nearly every night. She said that about a month into their marriage, she asked to join the men on one of their nights out. According to Lorena, the group tried to go to a club called Chelsea's in Washington, D.C., but they were turned away because their attire didn't fit the dress code. They decided to go to another bar, where Todd and John drank beer and took several shots. When it was time to go home, they all returned to the car, and John got behind the wheel. Lorena recalled that John sped down I-66 at over 90 miles per hour, recklessly weaving across lanes. Other drivers beeped their horns and veered to get out of their way. At one point, she was so afraid they were going to crash, she grabbed the steering wheel. According to Lorena, that's when John punched her. 
She started to cry as John screamed obscenities at her. Todd, sitting in the back seat, simply nodded in approval at John's tirade. Lorena reported that when they got home, John dragged her to their apartment and began to kick her, slap her, and pull her hair. A security guard, Officer Francis, heard the disturbance and came to the apartment. When John opened the door, his demeanor changed completely. Suddenly, he grew quiet and got his temper under control. Officer Francis saw Lorena crying and asked her if she had anywhere else she could go. She told him she was leaving, but she was too embarrassed to go to a friend's house. She didn't want anybody to know what had happened. Instead, she drove to the parking lot of the salon where she worked and slept in her car. John and his cousin Todd remember that night differently. They confirm Lorena's story that the three of them tried to go to a DC nightclub, Chelsea's, and that they were turned away because John was wearing sneakers. But Todd said that Lorena became enraged when the bouncer wouldn't let them in. He claimed she punched and scratched John across the face. Todd said Lorena continued to attack John when they got home. He did not mention a visit from Officer Francis. He said that he left them alone in their apartment and waited in a parking lot for them to calm down. Then he came back inside and went to bed. After the incident, Lorena tried to talk to John to communicate that it was unacceptable to hit her. She said that John kind of apologized, which gave her hope that she had gotten through to him. About a month later, the couple took a weekend trip to Ocean City, Maryland. They brought Todd along, as well as Lorena's friend and coworker, Terry McCumber. The group was walking along on the beach when John thought he heard a man whistle at the women. He grew furious. Lorena said John grabbed her by the hair and pulled her to their hotel. Terry McCumber confirmed Lorena's account of the trip. Horrified by the way John treated Lorena, she yelled at him to stop. But John ignored her and told the women that they were going home. John went back to the hotel to pack up their things. He ordered the group into the car and they began to drive. Terry said that on the drive home, she witnessed John hit and punch Lorena while she cowered in the passenger seat. Terry again screamed at John to stop, but he wouldn't listen. He told Terry that if she didn't shut up, he'd leave her on the side of the highway. John denied that he hit Lorena during this trip, but he admitted that he became angry with her. He said that while he was driving through traffic, Lorena and Terry were sitting together in the back seat, looking out the window and flirting with men they saw in the cars passing by them on the highway. He did not explain why he perceived their behavior to be flirtatious. He recalled feeling angry in Ocean City, but claimed that he didn't remember any other details of the trip. After they dropped Terry off and returned to their apartment, John continued to beat Lorena until she fled the apartment. She stayed with Terry that night, but she returned the next day. Jason B. Whiting, a professor of marriage and family therapy at Brigham Young University, cited religious and family pressure as one of the most common reasons that women stay in abusive relationships. In a 2012 study by Associate Professor of Psychology at Brigham Young University, Nwako Yamawaki, 
Research suggested that social stigma and fear of being judged often deter victims from leaving their abusive spouses. At that point, Lorena and John were still newlyweds, only married a few months. She did not want to admit her marriage was already a failure. Divorce also went against her Catholic beliefs, so she stayed with John. She was pleased when his cousin, Todd, finally moved out of their apartment a few weeks later. But John and Lorena's lives did not improve. By Lorena's account, John lost his temper and beat her at least once a month, especially when he was drinking. She felt particularly terrified when he started to choke her, wrapping his hands around her neck and digging his thumbs into her windpipe. Lorena's co-workers reported regularly seeing bruises on her arms, neck, and face. Around this same time, John and Lorena moved into a new house with more space. John said the move was Lorena's idea, and Lorena said it was John's. Both of them have since called the move a mistake, since the house cost more than they could afford. Worries about money added to their tension. Then, in the spring of 1990, 21-year-old Lorena became pregnant. Lorena couldn't understand how her marriage had gone so wrong. She tried to talk to John, but nothing she said could make him understand. When she explained how much he was hurting her, he either laughed or became angry. Lorena couldn't remember the last time she felt anything positive. Until now. But nothing, not even John, could take away the joy she felt being pregnant. She had always wanted to be a mother. In fact, she pictured herself eventually having three children, a family just like the one she had grown up in. She had reservations about starting a family with John, but for better or worse, he was her husband. And John was close with his own family, he always enjoyed spending time with his brothers and cousins. Perhaps, Lorena thought, he would be pleased to have a family of his own. Lorena clung to that hope. Having a baby would certainly change everything about their lives. Perhaps it would also change John into a different kind of man. But when Lorena told John about the pregnancy, he was furious. He didn't want a child and they couldn't afford one. He berated her, grabbed a phone book, and found a listing for a woman's clinic. Lorena said John insisted she have an abortion. John denied this, saying that they came to a mutual decision to end the pregnancy because neither of them were ready to be parents. But Lorena denied that she would ever have come to this decision on her own. It went strongly against her Catholic faith. 21-year-old Lorena terminated her pregnancy in mid-June of 1990. She said she was distraught, not only because she wanted to have the baby, but also because John taunted her before the procedure, telling her that it would be extremely painful and that she would not receive any anesthesia. Lorena became severely depressed after the abortion. She didn't want to talk to John or be anywhere near him. In response, she said, he began to rape her. With John's behavior escalating, Lorena started to fear for her life. They had a particularly terrifying altercation in late 1990. One morning, while John was backing out of the garage, 
Lorena approached the car. John had hidden her car keys before leaving, so she followed him out to ask him where they were. As Lorena stood beside the car, John flung the driver's door open. It hit Lorena and knocked her to the ground. He then careened the car out of the driveway and raced away without stopping to see whether she was all right. He didn't notice that when Lorena fell down, her clothes caught on the bumper. She managed to untangle herself before he sped off, but John came close to dragging her behind his car. Lorena felt like she might have been killed. When she went back inside after this incident, she saw a list of emergency phone numbers taped to her refrigerator, including the contact information for a Marine Corps helpline. She decided to call and was connected to a military social worker. In an interview with the social worker, John denied that he abused his wife, but when asked to fill out a questionnaire, he circled categories on the report sheet indicating that he had threatened to hit or throw something at her, pushed, carried, restrained, grabbed, or shoved her, drove recklessly to scare her, threw her bodily, and hit her or tried to hit her with something. John later said that he didn't remember filling out the form or even speaking with the social worker. He did say that he sometimes pushed Lorena or restrained her because he claimed she sometimes tried to hit him when they fought. He objected to this because, as he put it, it's not ladylike to strike out. Although John was questioned by the Marine Corps, nothing came of the interview. There was no follow-up. This was perhaps because John was due to be discharged from the military the following month. Lorena said that throughout 1991, John's beatings continued and became more frequent. On several occasions, 21-year-old Lorena placed calls to 911 to report the abuse. But the police rarely knew how to help her, saying they didn't have the training to advise a victim. Only once did one of her reports result in an arrest. In February of 1991, Lorena called 911 after John punched her in the face and twisted her arm. When the responding officer arrived, he noted that Lorena had sustained visible injuries to her elbow, lip, and foot. John was arrested and charged with assault and battery. John pleaded guilty to these charges, but his conviction was never recorded. The court records indicate that the case was dismissed after six months, after John completed the judge's condition of attending counseling. It would not be the last time police were called to handle a violent incident between John and Lorena Bobbitt. Coming up, we'll talk about the final years of the Bobbitt marriage and the night that preceded their permanent separation. Now back to the story. In the spring of 1991, 23-year-old John Wayne Bobbitt and his wife, 21-year-old Lorena, had been married for nearly two years. For the entirety of their marriage, Lorena claimed that John physically and emotionally abused her. She was not silent about the abuse. She told customers at the nail salon where she worked who asked about her bruises. Many of these customers were horrified by what they heard, but did nothing. She told neighbors, one of them gave her pamphlets on domestic violence and another offered her a place to stay, but Lorena declined the offer. She wasn't ready to leave yet, 
even if she was. She thought it would be too easy for John to find her. Lorena and John occasionally attended church services at Bethlehem Baptist Church. One Sunday, Lorena told the pastor there that her husband was hitting her. The pastor spoke to John, telling him to stop. He later recalled that John had no response. She told medical professionals, Dr. Inman treated Lorena for a respiratory infection. She noted that Lorena seemed agitated and nervous. She was hyperventilating. Dr. Inman asked her whether she was experiencing stress and Lorena responded that she was anxious because her husband made her have sex without her permission. The doctor advised Lorena to call protective services. At times, John was also open about his behavior. An acquaintance relayed a time they were hanging out with a group of men talking about women. In that conversation, confirmed by others, John bragged that he enjoyed having forcible sex. The friend recalled, he said that he liked to make girls squirm and yell and make them bleed and yell for help. Lorena seemed desperate for help, but the one thing she wasn't willing to do was end her marriage. At that point, she still believed that divorce would be a moral failing against her Catholic faith. But by the summer of 1991, even the appearance of a marriage between John and Lorena was rapidly disintegrating. According to Lorena, John started sleeping with other women. She said he often stole money from her purse to fund his dates. John rarely had money of his own to spend. After his discharge from the Marine Corps, he struggled to find and keep a job. The couple relied almost entirely on Lorena's income as a manicurist, but she didn't make enough to pay their bills. Their cars were repossessed and their house was foreclosed on. Sometime in the summer of 1991, in order to keep up with the bills and get her car back, Lorena began embezzling money from the nail salon. She wrote up false tickets for the customers she served, overcharging them and kept the difference. She did this for several months. When she eventually confesses to John, he was furious. They agreed she should come clean to her boss, Jana Basuti. Miss Basuti was angry, but she had known Lorena for several years and she understood her desperate situation. Instead of firing her, she docked Lorena's commissions until all the money she'd stolen was repaid. With financial strain and John's infidelity a constant source of tension, the couple separated in October of 1991 after two years of marriage. John moved back to Niagara Falls to stay with his family. Lorena moved back in with the Castros. The couple remained apart for nearly a year, but they stayed in touch by telephone. Both seemed interested in reconciliation, despite everything that had happened between them. John was still Lorena's first love. She admitted, I was scared to meet somebody else. A 2003 study published in the Journal of Family Violence found that leaving an abuser tends to be a process rather than a discrete event and can take several years. On average, a victim leaves their abuser seven times before the separation is permanent. In September of 1992, 24-year-old John returned to Virginia. He said he and Lorena wanted to try to start over again and work on their marriage. 
they moved into the Maplewood Park apartment complex in Manassas. According to Lorena, the abuse resumed immediately after they were reunited. Lorena said that by the start of 1993, John beat her at least twice a week. By May, Lorena finally seemed to recognize that their relationship was beyond repair. Around this time, John told her that his friend Robert was moving into their one-bedroom apartment. After the experience with Todd, Lorena was weary about having more men stay in her home, but John didn't give her a choice. At this point, Lorena thought about getting a divorce. When she brought it up to John, he told her she could leave, but reminded her that he knew where she worked. He would always be able to find her, even if their marriage was over. According to Lorena, John told her that divorced people usually stay friends and continue to have sex. Given his past behavior, Lorena took this as a threat. He would continue to rape her, even if they split up. As the abuse continued, Lorena had the idea to hide a tape recorder in her purse. She thought a tape of John berating her might be helpful in divorce proceedings, but John discovered the tape while trying to take money from her purse and he flew into a rage. The Bobbitt's downstairs neighbors later said they heard a loud argument with someone banging and running around. She heard Lorena screaming at John to give back her purse. Lorena said that John grabbed the tape and flushed it down the toilet. Then she said, John raped her. Lorena tried to fight him off. She scratched his face, leaving a gouge in his cheek but he overpowered her. Lorena reached a point where she didn't want to salvage things. Her life with John was a nightmare and she just wanted it to be over. Over the next few weeks, she moved things out of the apartment. She told neighbors she was donating clothes and furniture if they wanted to come by and take what they liked. It seemed that she was finally preparing to walk out of her marriage. On Saturday, June 19, 1993, Lorena ran into a neighbor, Diane Hall. She told Diane that she was moving out and looking for a new place to live. The next day, John's friend, Robert Johnston, arrived to stay with the Bobbitts. Robert noted that Lorena was moving boxes out of the apartment. He said the couple seemed strained and that they were ignoring each other. On Monday, June 21st, Lorena went to the Prince William County Courthouse. She filled out paperwork to obtain a protective order against her husband. She was worried about what John had said, that he would track her down even if they split up. At the courthouse, the clerk helped her fill out the paperwork, then let her know it would take some time to type up and enter the order into the computer system. Lorena told him that she couldn't stay, but that she might return on Wednesday to complete the process. She may have decided to wait because she had not yet found her own apartment and was still living with John. Lorena might have realized that if she filed the protective order that day, they would have had to separate immediately before she was ready to move out. The next morning, John and Robert were gone when Lorena woke up. John had gotten a job unloading trucks at a food warehouse and secured Robert temporary work there as well. Lorena went to work at the nail salon as usual when she came home, the men were still out. John was supposed to work a second job that evening as a host at a nightclub, but he was told it was a slow night and he wasn't needed. 
he and Robert decided to go out for drinks instead. Lorena, meanwhile, had a quiet night at home. She visited with her downstairs neighbor, Ella Jones, and talked about her marriage. Miss Jones had overheard several incidents of violence and she was worried about Lorena. When Lorena opened up about the abuse, Miss Jones told her that she could come spend the night at her place, but she was an elderly woman with several health problems and Lorena did not want to make more trouble for her. She thanked Miss Jones for the offer. Then she went back to her apartment and went to bed. After drinking several beers, John and Robert left the bar around 1.30 a.m. They had a meal at a Denny's restaurant, then returned to the Maplewood Park apartment around 3 a.m. in the early hours of Wednesday, June 23rd. Lorena said that she woke up to find her husband on top of her. He had ripped off the shorts and underwear she was wearing and forced himself onto her. She said she tried to cry out, but he shoved his tongue so far down her throat, she thought she was going to vomit. She kept shaking her head no, but he ignored her and raped her. Afterward, he pushed her away. Lorena said she cried and asked him why he did this to her. He told her to leave him alone and let him sleep. Lorena pulled on her clothes and got out of bed. Her head roiled as unwanted images flashed through her brain. She couldn't stop the barrage of memories. The first time John hit her, kicked her, choked her, and all the times after, hundreds of instances seared into her mind. She tried to calm herself down, to stop her body from shaking, to stop the pictures from flitting through her brain, but it was impossible. She was so tired and angry, she had reached her limit. She was desperate to escape, to be rid of John, but it seemed impossible. The hold he had on her felt like a heavy cloak on her shoulders. She couldn't simply shrug it off. It suffocated her. She felt terrified that she would never be free. Lorena went into the kitchen. She thought a glass of water might help settle her nerves. As she opened the refrigerator, the kitchen filled with light. Lorena turned towards the counter to grab a glass. Instead, the first thing she saw was a knife. She reached out and wrapped her fingers around the handle. It felt smooth and cool in her hand. When she returned to the bedroom, she took the knife with her. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with the next episode on John and Lorena Bobbitt. We'll discuss how Lorena ended her marriage and the trials and media storm that came after. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. 
It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion is written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>